Welcome to the EMT Pro Podcast, where we deliver relevant EMS content from the field and the classroom each week. I'm your host, Steve, and with me I have co-hosts Dan and Holly. Guys, say hi. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. And uh, just as a reminder, each episode of this podcast gets everybody one full hour of CE through our partner, emt-ce.com. So head over there for more information. Uh, excited about today's episode, we're going to be talking about airway, which is, I think, every, even BLS and ALS providers, like, favorite topic, for the most part. So I guess, Dan, where do you want to, where do you want to start with today's episode and what, uh, you want to start with a case study? Do you want to start I, with, I do. Uh, okay. I do. I have a good one that's, uh, that, uh, I think will, will shed a little light on this. Perfect. So I was, I work at the fire department and I was working on a fire-based, uh, medic unit and we don't transport uh, at this particular station. And so it's my partner and I, we're going on a motorcycle accident on a large highway. And we have a private ambulance coming and they are the, the transporting agency. And so it's just the two units coming to this because everything else is super busy. And so we arrive, uh, motorcyclist was struck from behind by another car. He did have a helmet on, but it's one of those little skull caps. And so he had mm-hmm. some a head injury going on because okay. it wasn't uh, strapped on very well. And so he's unconscious and responsive. The, uh, the transporting medic pulls him right behind us. So we do rapid, uh, C-spine onto the gurney and get in the back of the ambulance. Uh, we're probably 15 minutes away from the trauma center, level one trauma center. Okay. This was a point in my career where I would RSI anyone and everyone. Oh, your finger hurts. Okay. I'll stand by. Let's take your airway. <laughs> Let's take your airway. Ground level uh, fall, getting a tube. Getting a tube. So all it would take at that point in time is me to go to the next exit, flip around, go back, uh, bypass all the traffic, and get to the trauma center within 12, 15 minutes. That, I probably should have done that. Okay. 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 Yeah. But we pulled to the side of the road, let the traffic go by, and we are going to RSI this patient. Okay. Which at the time, I thought was a great idea. So uh, I'm working with uh, an inexperienced medic, and then the two medics on the ambulance were very experienced, but they're still in the same group. They've been in for 30 years. Mm. So uh, we start the process, and all we did, we're going to push drugs and put the tube in. Mm. So uh, his SATs were like 89%. Okay. That didn't even phase me at all. Okay, so did you, did you pre-oxygenate? Nope. Did you, nothing. Nope. No, we needed a tube. Uh, nope. Gotta wow. get this tube. Wow, okay. I gotta get this tube so I can get back and get some, uh, get some food. Right, yeah, I mean, right. it's probably mealtime. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, okay, so let's just do this. Um, I'm gonna get the airway because I have to get the airway because I love getting the airway. So I'm in the airway seat, position myself, uh, appropriately, making sure they push in the drugs. I've got my tube ready. No one's watching the monitor. No one even knows what the sats are. And I go in, and this is before we had video laryngoscopes. Okay. And I look in there, and I all I see are holes. 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 Plural. Like, like, which hole do I put it in? Yeah. I guess not that one. So I put it in this one. Okay. Okay, it was the wrong one. Okay. okay. So esophageal, okay. right? Uh, I did have sense enough to put on the entitled CO2. Okay. Uh, did you get a blood pressure? Didn't get a blood pressure. Who needs yeah. a blood pressure? Who needs that? one of those? Who needs that, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, okay, uh, I guess I'll pull the tube out. I was pissed. And so I pulled the tube out and 
didn't even look at the stats. I mean, it's a traumatic brain injury. What do we think of traumatic brain injury? Well, a lot of things. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Those stats go down below 90 is... uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Possibility of mortality. Cushing's uh, and everything else. Mortality, right. Yep. So, uh, we don't even really bank him up. I just position something else, do something different, and put the tube in. Put the tube in. Looked in title, in title, it was, I don't know, 38 or whatever. I looked at the sats. The sats are 64. Jeez. So, 64. Uh, and this was a, a relatively healthy young guy yeah. where there was no underlying lung disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what what did I do? I high-fived my partner because I just got the tube. Right. Ew. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Stronger. Yeah. I did a great job. And I mean... Right. Let's go. Did you just start hyperventilating at like 30, 40 a minute? Uh, well, I mean, the, the, the title was right where I wanted it. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I gave a little high five. All right. Yeah. Let's, let's go to the trauma center now. What, 15 minutes later, we would have been there. Right. Had we just transported and just controlled the airway as best we could. Um, but we did deliver him with SATs in the 90s after I've ruined his brain with SATs in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that time, I had no idea. Yeah. No idea what I did. Yeah, I mean, I remember going through medic school 12 years ago or so, and the idea of impressing pre-oxygenation was, was definitely in our curriculum. Uh, but it was, I remember the six or seven Ps were brand new. Right. Like that whole pre-oxygenate, prepare, you know, uh, don't ask me what the it's rest like the are. It's like the five H's and five T's. <laughs> put you can't the remember in. them all. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. For testing right. purposes, yeah. but yeah. to actually do them. Right. And I I hear you. It it was not uncommon looking back uh, during my volunteer years, which were a few years prior to paramedic school, and, and remembering calls where, man, they just didn't think about that stuff because it wasn't, you know, as long as it. you got the tube in the right spot and you got the sats back up into the 90s, you're a little success. a little hypoxic yeah. episode, yeah. yeah. You know that just comes with the territory. And we but. never worried about blood pressure. No, no, that no. was never a consideration to ever resuscitate before you push paralytics. Right. Yeah, and then I remember, you know, the uh, permissive hypotension uh, debate, which became, you know, actually something we should be doing. Um, I remember traumas back then being. Two big bore IVs and just, just wide run open. it wide open until you get the pressure you want. How it's many like, bags can I get in there before yeah. you get the trauma center? Yeah. Oh man, I think I get at least two. You right. Know, at least two. <laughs> right. right. I'll sit on this thing. Yeah. <clears throat> oh man. I feel like when I went through paramedic school, I learned how to intubate by we never medicated for pain or sedation. Nope. First of right. all. That was never impressed. That was never impressed. And then just stick the blade in there until you see something and pull back. Mm-hmm. That's how I was taught. Same here. Um, and we never positioned the patient because we just wanted to intubate under the table or the semi-trailer mm-hmm. or wherever because that wasn't an option. Right. Or it wasn't impressed upon us to make our first attempt our best attempt. I remember, it, I remember taking that difficult airway management course um, five or six years ago and just having my – I remember just feeling like, oh, my gosh, why wasn't – so much of this stuff, just baseline paramedic knowledge in a book somewhere. We're not. We're, we're talking about positioning. We're talking about 
innovating in all these weird spots that we could potentially be called to innovate. You know, I've, I've had a few. I haven't had like really crazy ones. I've had a couple that are pretty out there, but, um, you know, upside down in a vehicle. Haven't done that one, but, but you know what, what's wrong with those courses is we need a course where it's not the difficult innovations. It's the intubations. Yeah. You know, because we just doing it right. Way too, way fewer patients than we did back in the day. Because now we have IGLs and Kings and such, you know, we're popping those on cardiac arrest. Then we at the CHFers are getting CPAP. And so tube delivery is way down. And so our, our practice is way out. Yeah. So. And I think the areas where we all work, there are several paramedics on scene. Correct. yeah. The chance of you getting that tube is pretty low unless you're first on scene and can Very true. you have to position yourself. Very true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got friends who are known for, oh, look who just decided to sit in the airway seat yeah. right when they needed yeah. to. Yep. And, uh, and I'm kind of that they guy. They just giggle at you. Yeah. I know you are. Yeah. yeah. But let's see. I'm trying to be a more of a mentor now as opposed to someone who does the work. Right. But then you just sit there and get so frustrated. So like, Dude, I, we just went over this and drilled today. Yeah. Position the patient. Yeah. Just. Do it I got right. it. Get out. Yeah. You know what? Just move. Yeah. I think another thing that was ingrained in us when we first came up in this EMS business was, um, I don't know how to say this, but checklists are for dummies. Right. If you can't just do it right off the top of your head, you're an idiot. Yeah. And so checklists were never a thing that we used. Mm-hmm. Even the dosing cards. Right. When those came out, it was just trying to get people to use those was... Kind of a big deal. Right. Because Unless you didn't you're a want to be the pilot. one to pull out the dosing card, right? I remember I was on probation uh, with my fire department, and they had just released a uh, binder of COGs for the first time. Like, they had them in printed form, but, like, they were not distributed well, and they finally, like, got this out into people's hands. And I was like, oh, man, I could make this into a flip book. So I took it, shrunk it down, had it printed, and... Everybody was like, yeah, dude, I want one of those. I was like, okay, cool. So make a big order. Everybody, you know, chips in or whatever and we get them because management wouldn't do it because their thought was, we don't want you guys in the heat of a moment looking something up. Exactly. And it's like, why not? Like, isn't that what you want us to do? (laughs) Like, you know, if we have a question to be looking something, obviously we're not going to be taking the chest pain protocol out when someone is... Right. You know, exactly. experiencing chest pain. Like, hang on, let me ask you this question next, and then this question, and then this question. Like, it, it's not like that. It's it, it's used as a reference for those low-frequency, high-risk events, right? But And if you're in the ER, you're never going to walk into a code or some sort of resuscitation without someone having a checklist or two out. Absolutely. They're all over the place. We don't start up the aircraft without a checklist. We we have yeah. checklists for everything on that side. Yep. Um, so let's, can we go back? Yeah, let's quick? go back though. So let's start at the beginning. Like, why did I intubate that patient? Yeah, let's talk about it. I'm super close to the trauma center. Right. I'm understaffed. There's only four people on scene. So Dan, this and is the stuff that gets me excited because I like the mental side yeah. of what we do. Like, right. You know, there's, it's, it, it, it's all different. It is. If we get out, if, like when I teach our new people at the fire department, I will take the protocol book, I will open the door, and I will throw it across the street because it's just a guideline. Yeah. And people just take that thing and they just go. My kid, when he was 12, could have been a paramedic because all he has to do is just read down the mm-hmm. protocols. Um, so 
think of, you got to critically think each one of these calls and each one of these patients. And so that person, that tube was all for me. That was, I was bored that day. I needed something. Yeah, this guy needs a tube. He's going to get it eventually. So why not have me do it? Why his brain is, you know, becoming <clears throat> so yeah. huge inside his skull. Right. So, uh, so you wanted to intubate this guy. Oh yeah. Did he I have wanted. a mental status? Was he breathing? He was tell breathing. Us, tell us about him. Yeah, yeah, he was, he was breathing. Uh, his sats would have been a hundred percent had I just put an odd breather on him, control this airway, had suction out, ready to go. And everybody else on scene was like, yeah. Right. It's RSI. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Basically. I mean, the new person, he really didn't have anything to say. Mm-hmm. He was just, you know, he was just there to assist and drop some drugs and such. And the two on the, on the ambulance were pretty checked out. Mm-hmm. Um, what we could have done, best case scenario, get in the back of the ambulance, start driving up and preparing for the innovation. Yeah. And that's the part that I've noticed it's really difficult for, and I think it's, no offense, Daniel, I think it's a generational thing. Well, thank you. In a lot of ways. I am a baby boomer, and I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> Greatest generation. Yes. <laughs> the, the thing that I, I, I have been on calls with 20 plus year vets where we're having a conversation about why we shouldn't intubate and why it's good to just keep their sats up and go the extra three quarters of a mile to the hospital and not stop and innovate. Right. And those arguments get a little heated. Uh, and I truly think that's in the best patient's interest. Right. I mean, it absolutely is. I have actually pulled over a quarter mile away from the hospital to pop a tube in. We've been in the ambulance bay. Oh, you got me beat. <laughs> I mean, not to one up you there, but I'm asking myself, why, why are we doing this here? Yeah. And then you get the, the trauma surgeon, you get the ER doc, you get the, and they're saying, what the f- team? you doing right yeah. now? And they're going, uh, really guys right now? Yep. And like, you know, the doors are wide open and right. you know, someone's got a laryngoscope in this person's mouth. And I mean, they're probably not pre-oxygenated. They're probably not resuscitated, medicated appropriately. Yeah, I mean, it, I agree with you about it being a generational thing. I think in some ways, yeah. It's a, I, was, I don't want to paint with a super broad brush, but yeah. in some Appreciate ways, that. Yeah. well, <laughs> see, I became a paramedic in 2002, uh-huh. and so I do remember thinking, like, oh, I can't show up at the ER without a tube, an IV, C-spine, or they're going to judge me. Exactly. Right. right. But, I've been a nurse for a while now, and I've been on that other side at the trauma center receiving the patients, and nobody cares. Yeah. They care if the patient's got an airway or O2 sats or a blood pressure, but they don't really care what you have or haven't done in the field because everybody knows you're doing your best. Right. Um, But I do remember feeling that pressure. I Mm -hmm. can't show up to to the trauma center without this person being intubated. Yeah. And then they intubate right when they get there, and you feel like shit, right? Yep. Yep. We'll but when they intubate and they've got all the anesthesia and RT oh, and oxygen and the rapid infuser, yeah. they're in a better situation to do that than we are. And if For sure. we can deliver them with a blood pressure and a SAT and some brain function, that's a win. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. But I would have never thought that when I worked in the field. No. The thing that I've kind of, going back to that mental component of all this, the thing that... I've learned to enjoy far more than getting a tube. The feeling of someone coming back to the fire station and saying thank you right. and giving you a card or, you know, uh, 
just saying thanks. Right. Uh, those moments are, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps now just talking about it. <laughs> like it, it's really, really cool. And you know that you did your best, you made a difference. And now, you know, a month later they're walking, talking and right. saying thank you. And in the sequence of their emergency, you did your part. Yes. You got the patient from the scene to the hospital. Mm-hmm. You didn't stop and have to get an airway and do this and do that. Yeah. Why do you, what's the thing about stopping to get an airway? You can't do an airway while you're driving? Uh, or just because there's only one person in the back? It's a little judgy no. sounding, Holly. Uh, I know, no, I'm just no, no, you're absolutely right. because <laughs> there's only one person and you got to get out and help? No. No. Oh. no, because you'll have more. It all depends on where you work, right? Uh, but there are some people who, are, who have to have a completely still ambulance to either start an IV or pop an airway in. Yeah. I know. You just saw Holly's eyes right there. And that is truly a paramedic to paramedic thing. I've been driving where people are like, okay, I'm going to get an IV. Go ahead and stop. Yeah. Like, what? Dude, your right. job is right. doing this in the back of a moving ambulance. Right. That's your job. And, you know, their their argument is going to be, well, it's not a critical patient. I should be doing this as why are you doing an comfortably IV? as I can. Exactly. And it's like, you know, I... I can go back and forth with these people a bunch, but in my brain, you should be able to look up the front of the ambulance, know where you're at in your district, and say, okay, the roads are crappy here. I'm going to wait a minute, or the roads are good here. I'll just put one in real quick. But the idea of stopping the transport right, for four minutes to get an IV and secure it and everything else. Could you imagine us in the helicopter? Hey, can you land this thing real quick? <laughs> Come <laughs> grab an IV real quick. <laughs> That wouldn't go over well. No, it would go over well. Oh, man. So let's go back to airways in general. And I want to touch on, you know, we started with the case, but I want to go more into the the educational side, the classroom component of this. So we've learned or we've been talking about what we shouldn't be doing, i.e. pulling over, you know, seconds away from the hospital right. and doing, doing this, stuff right. for your own ego. Right. Um, doing what's truly in best in the patient, in the, in the, can I talk? Best interest of the patient. Truly what is in the best interest of the patient. You went to a five-star school, right? I did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm talking. Mine was a order, so. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but Dan, talk to me about what good checklists in your head should look like, um, for RSI or for innovating. So for the, the first thing is. First thing in my checklist in my head is get out the checklist because okay. I'm stressed at that time and mm-hmm. I'm trying to manage a full scene and a, a crump patient. So like Holly said, that checklist needs to be out. So it kind of resets yourself. Uh, it slows it all down. It calms everything down. And then everyone is on the same page. Mm-hmm. And then you're not going to read through the entire checklist like, okay, what are our indications for intubation today? Right. If you have the checklist out, you probably got that one covered. Yeah, for <laughs> so, sure. So you hit the high points. Is the patient pre-oxygenated? Is the patient positioned? Is the patient resuscitated? Mm-hmm. And what I mean by resuscitated is resuscitated is you want to make sure that their, their sats are as high as you can get them and they're denitrogenated. You want to make sure their blood pressure is high enough that they're going to perfuse the brain during the, the intubation. Um, and if not, resuscitate. Yeah. Fluids, pressors. Have all that stuff out. So uh, at where I work, our fourth drug we always pull out regardless is push dosepi. Even if the pressure is 150, we'll pull out. Well, it doesn't mean we give it, but it's all set and ready to go. Yep. 
And that's why we're always critically thinking every single patient, not the algorithm of mm-hmm. airway. Because you think of the algorithm of airway, that's when you're in paramedic school, you have that mannequin in front of you, and you're going through the steps. Right. Now you have a real person who has a beard or is super fat or yeah. is very anterior. Um, has a distracting they, injury. And they're not exactly. laying on yeah. a table. Right. right. Exact height you need them to Yes. Be. Right. Exactly. exactly. Or you have a partner who's chirping in your ear. Or you've got all these stressors that are going on. So, where was I on this? So, resuscitation. Talk about checklist. Thank you. Checklist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> checklist for this yeah. podcast. Get your checklist out, please. <laughs> yeah. And so, I get that checklist out, and, and it's it's like you start speaking, and everyone shuts up, and everybody knows where you're going. And so, it goes down the line and to the point where you have a failed airway plan. And that's a horrible way to say it because if you, like Holly said, if you deliver a patient to the trauma bay without an airway, but at least they're maintaining their airway, you're doing good jaw thrust, you've got uh, adjuncts in, that is a good airway management. Because yeah. you have critically thought that patient, like I don't want to, I'm too close to the hospital, I'm not going to RSI. Mm-hmm. Or this patient, if it goes, if it goes shitty, I don't have a backup to f- fix this. Right. So on our checklist, we have a failed airway plan. Like, okay, I'm going to intubate once. If I don't get it, I'm going to pass off my partner. I'm going to let him do it once or she. If they don't get it, I have the king or the eye gel. That doesn't work. We'll bag the patient. If we can, if we can adequately bag the patient. If not, I'll crack the patient and here are my landmarks. Mm-hmm. And that announces to everyone your plan. There's no surprises like, oh, and it gives myself permission to do whatever I have to do. Like, are you I in the habit of um, marking your patients for crags when you're doing an RSI? Uh, sometimes. Yeah. The only thing is, is people move. Right. And so you can have that. I'll, I'll always touch it and point to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that works really well. And then that just relieves all the stress in the back of the ambulance. Right. And I like what you said, which was if we can bag adequately – and get a good seal, and you've got oxygen exchange, um, you're going to intubate. If you can't intubate, you're going to put in a superglottic airway. Mm-hmm. And if you can't do that, you're going to go back to bagging mm-hmm. because you can bag. You can bag. Instead of going straight to crike. Right. Yeah. Crike, I think of a crike as I can't oxygenate, can't ventilate. Right. right. So I'm going to crike. But if you can do that with a BVM. Right. So I like how you put BVM back in the algorithm. You've got to put it back in the algorithm, right? Before a crike. Right. And sometimes you just have to skip right to crike. I'm not saying right. not to do it. For sure. But don't forget, BVM is good airway management. For sure. Absolutely. The thing that I always think about is, you know, where does this have to get to for me to pull the trigger on a crike? And I like to set trigger points for myself. And the reason that I use a checklist or I go to a checklist, and I might not like you were saying, I might not look at the thing very thoroughly because I know it. Um, it, not all the time, but sometimes. Um, but the reason I go to it is because it resets where I'm at. Right. I've just learned we're on the scene of a whatever patient that needs a whatever, you know, uh, intervention and your brain and your body start, you know, dumping a little bit of adrenaline and you start getting a little amped. And when you catch yourself in that, and you can step back and say, okay, time to check myself, check my breathing, check my tone of voice. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm using a quieter, 
calmer tone of voice, it always helps the situation. It never oh. makes it worse. It brings the, the stress in the back of the ambulance way down, Absolutely. doesn't it? And if I'm using a, a voice that is uh, giving lots of directions and is a little bit sped up, and you can sense that disorganized. Yes, that little anxiety undertone. Yeah. Everybody picks up on that and it yep. snowballs yep. really quick. And so I like to the, the checklist thing I've always liked because it forces me to step back, look at something, take my brain off of what I've just seen, what I'm worried about, what my concerns are, and it helps me get my my drugs out in the right order, get that thing going. And then I start to formulate, okay, trigger points. I'm going to have a backup airway device, you know, in case this thing goes, uh, not as smoothly as I thought. And okay. Worst case scenario, I've got my cry kit out and I'm ready to go. If I need to do that, haven't had to get there with an RSI in the back of an ambulance per se, but knowing that I have that when you have plan a, fail, you have plan B and C ready to go. That provides that comfort that allows that mental component of what right. you're doing to really take you to the next level and get, 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 get done what you need to get done or what you're trying to accomplish in the back. And having the checklist, it really does put everyone on the same page and it gives you a way to be direct mm-hmm. without worrying about hurting people's feelings. Right. We're always worried about goes. feelings. If I've got my list out and I say, have we, pre- have we pre-oxygenated? That's pretty direct, right. but I'm reading off my list. Yeah. Um, and then, like Dan said, everybody knows what the plan is. It takes the stress level down. It gets mm-hmm. quiet. Um, it's, it's awesome. And to be honest with you, in however many years I've been in EMS, never used a checklist, ever. Yeah. Until the last couple of years. Right. And I've only because I've made that my practice. Yeah. And it's really and hard to change. we're still fighting to use it. Yeah, it's hard to change all the bad habits that I have over all these years that I've honed perfectly. Mm-hmm. Great job. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, Steve, back to uh, the Craig thing. And this, think of a pilot. Yep. Think of a pilot who says, I've been, I've been flying a lot, and I have used my parachute six times. Do you want to fly with that guy? Absolutely not. Probably not. Well, <laughs> yeah. I've been a paramedic for 30 years, mm-hmm. wait, 25 years. I'm trying to make myself look better than I am. 25 years, and I've cracked six times. Mm-hmm. What does that say? Suck at airway management. <laughs> That's exactly what it says. <laughs> so um, uh, the only good thing about that is now when I walk into a back of an ambulance, I automatically think I am going to crack this patient. Because I start up here where I'm going to crack this patient, mm-hmm. and then I work my way down. There's nothing worse than getting in the back of the ambulance thinking that it's a nothing call and have to start climbing that ladder and saying, oh, I got to try this. I got to try that. And then you get to the, the crack point, and by that time, they're coded. Yeah. If I start at thinking, I'm going to crack, and then work my way down, just become more and more disappointed as, it, as the <laughs> call goes on, then so it's a problem. You just brought up something that... Reminded me about something in education. So uh, there's two ways that instructors typically grade. They grade you, you on day one. You have a zero and you earn that A, right? You you, okay, right. you know, each assignment you get a 90 plus and you end up with an A in the class, um, or however it you know averages out. Or there's that other school of thought that says everybody on day one has a 100 percent, and you have to work to lose it if that's really what you are trying to do. So you hand in your assignments on time, you do a good job, you maintain your A. 
but if you you know start to slip, right, then you go down that cascade, right? So you're basically on that second school of thought with everybody's getting a Craig today, <laughs> right? You've got to prove to me that you're losing it, and then when you drop down to a seventy, right, it's a typical RSI for you, and you're not doing anything super special beyond it, right? Interesting, Daniel. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I like yeah. that. Okay, so where do we go from here when it comes to talking about the classroom side of things and where education should be with RSI? And it sounds like we've identified or seen a lack of education on um, using your your checklist, uh, maybe even the mental side of things where you know you're checking your ego and you're not letting that dictate which procedures you perform. Um, but what else? I tell you, you have to be able to change. That's, I mean, for so many years I was unwilling to change because mm-hmm. I fear change. Everybody does. A yeah. lot. Yeah. Uh, so if you cannot start changing your practice by way where the, the literature is going, the studies are going, then you are going to be a horrible clinician. Yeah. And I see that a lot, like the old people, like you're talking about, like myself. If you don't listen to podcasts, you don't re-engage in EMS because EMS is dragging, right? It yeah. just it just grinds on you because you go on the same people, and then you get that critical call, and then catches you off guard. Catches you off guard, mm-hmm. right? And so you have to. Every day has to be a new day. It has to be. Well, how can I better myself today? Yeah. Um, the more, the longer I do this, the more I, I know I don't know. It is scares the shit out of me. That yeah. is so true. The oh. longer I'm in this business and the, the more in depth we get, like from EMS to the ICU to the ED to flight medicine, the longer I do this, the more I realize I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really humbling to For think sure. like how lucky I've gotten over my career. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, what we man, if I would have known that back then, but going back to your question, some of the things that people I think, um, miss yeah. is don't forget when you push paralytics you take away all vascular tone so if they right. put a shitty blood pressure at the beginning and then you take away all the tone that their blood vessels have to keep that blood squeezed yeah um they're gonna code right and i don't know how many times in my career we've been pushing meds and say well you know hope we don't kill this person yeah right yeah but it was never brought up to us as good clinicians to make sure you uh, resuscitate that patient, give the push dose epi, mm-hmm. give some blood, give fluids or whatever you carry before you push those paralytics. Right. Because we're all so concerned about getting the tube. Oh, their blood pressure is bad. Their stats are bad. We need a tube. We need the tube right now. We need the tube right now, which you don't right. actually need yeah. the tube right now. Um, but I think those are the things that I wish I would have known oh, at the gosh. very beginning of my career or would have been impressed on me by my mentors and preceptors and partners over the years. Yeah. Uh, that those things are way more important mm-hmm. than getting the tube. So, Holly, I think you had a case we want to go over with RSI. Oh. Um, okay. The one I didn't RSI? Yeah. That's yeah. perfect. <laughs> I like it. Okay. The non RSI RSI. This was actually just um, a month ago. Okay. We had a really bad MVA, uh, long extrication. We arrived on scene as they were, uh, I was on the flight crew that day, so we arrived on scene as they were extricating this person. Um, he was screaming at us that he was going to die, which I agreed with. Yeah. Um, and 
you know, we hadn't really done anything. So I pull them out. Their first question was, do you want an RSI here or in the ambulance? And, you know, I was like, well, let's at least do a rapid trauma assessment first. And so I was doing my rapid trauma assessment. And as I pulled his sweats down to check his pelvis, yeah. blood started squirting at me. Oh, and I wow. was like, oh, shit, that's not good. Yeah. Um, and I was working with a really strong partner that day. And we both looked at each other and at the same time said, he needs a surgeon. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind, we have a 10-minute flight to a level one trauma center. Okay. Um, we could not get a radial pulse. He did not have a blood pressure, but he was screaming at us. So he was alert and oriented enough to tell right. us he was going to die, which, again, I agreed with. And that's what's keeping him alive, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I almost got caught up in it. I mm-hmm. really was like, well, we should probably RSI in the ambulance then because there's suction and all the other good stuff in there. And then quickly I was like, uh, he, you know, he needs a surgeon. Right. He does not need an airway right now. Right. We got to go. And so – Simultaneously, we're getting an IO to give fluids, and we made the decision just to go. Mm-hmm. So we were on scene for about seven minutes before we lifted to go to the trauma center. And in route, it's difficult at best to intubate. Right. You know, so yeah. we were thinking ahead that if we do need to intubate this guy, if he loses his airway, we just had a, a king airway out. Yeah. That was going to be our first attempt at a good airway because we probably wouldn't need to RSI. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a pretty simple procedure. Right. So we got him to the trauma bay. Um, we gave him a unit of blood on the way, and we had our push dose epi out because I figured we would need it, which we didn't. And when we got to the trauma bay, they did RSI him right away, and his pressure dropped from 90 to 60. He was on the rapid infuser for blood administration, um, and they could not get his blood pressure back up for about – I don't know, 35 minutes, mm-hmm. and he went straight to the OR with an iliac artery laceration. Wow. You would have killed him on scene. We would have killed yeah, him absolutely. if we pushed paralytics. And they darn near killed him in the trauma bay, but with a rapid infuser, you can just infuse massive amounts of blood right. to overcome that blood pressure. And um, that was one of the first times I've delivered a dying trauma patient to a trauma center without a definitive area, right. if we want to call it that. Mm-hmm. But he had great sats. He was still screaming at us. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had a blood pressure. And that was the best call I've ever been on. See, I was so wow. proud of myself oh for my not gosh. intubating. I did. Yeah. Ten years ago, I would have said, you were chicken. Yeah. You were scared. No. But now that excites me so much that you didn't do anything. I know. Mm-hmm. Except transport. Right. We resuscitated. We pre-oxygenated. We did all of the things we needed to do. And prepared just in case. And we were prepared just in case. But, you know, if we had had a 30-minute transport. Different story. Yeah. I don't think I would have done anything differently. Really? Okay. Yeah. I think we still would have loaded without an airway. Mm-hmm. Right. Just done it. Rapid infused blood and fluids and reassessed. Yeah. So just so everyone knows, tell us why he was maintaining that blood pressure. This guy is, I think while he was trapped, somehow he had this huge puncture wound in his left lower abdomen. And it wasn't actively bleeding. It, it didn't look like it was bleeding. Had I not pulled his sweats down to do my assessment, I might not have noticed mm-hmm. that he was bleeding to death. Um, so, you know, when that happens, your body releases all kinds of catecholamines. You've got epi and norepi. Um, you want to perfuse your brain, of course, so all your vessels squeeze. Mm-hmm. And... He had a really good blood pressure because I think he 
He was in a ton of pain. He had a huge catecholamine dump, and we were giving him blood. Right. So we were replacing what came out of the wound that we packed very well. Mm-hmm. And then I put the uh, big, huge, bulky dressing on top of it and used the spider straps to uh, push yuck. it down to right. create a pressure dressing. Mm-hmm. So I think we did occlude right. the artery pretty well because it was right up against the pelvis. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, catecholamines, blood, fluids. Right. Airway. We and didn't screw with his normal physiology. His body, your body's really good at... Keeping yourself alive. Keeping yourself alive. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And so this, I'm stealing this from someone else, but the analogy that I was told that finally kicked into my head is like in Holly's patient right there, if you were to go inside his head, the music that would be playing would be Nine Inch Nails. Just... Yeah, you take that away with Tomidate or ketamine, and then sucks them. Then you have Bob Marley just mm-hmm. just kind of swaying around, and his <laughs> blood pressure is going to dump. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so I'll relax now. Nice yeah. job. Want that. The thing you brought up that was a funny reminder for me was stupid questions on scene, and how annoying they are. So, not necessarily that the person who asked the question about RSI here or RSI in the ambulance was asking a stupid question. They thought the guy needed a tube, so I get that. But there's been numerous times, and I'll share an example, of where a really dumb question or a really dumb statement. Blood sugar. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it it truly stops a lot of good progress at times. And here's my example. So uh, we're in a... Uh, kind of on the outskirts of our town, uh, highway area and, uh, two lane highway, uh, like 45, 50 mile an hour zone and head on guy drifts in the other lane, boom, t- uh, head on kind of on that angle, right? So it spins the cars and one guy's trapped in the vehicle. We show up on scene and, um, we've got everybody coming, a couple engines, a command rig, two medic units. Um, we had a lot of people in place to go on a call when this one came in. So we get, uh, we get on scene and I'm met by this. I'm sure he was a lovely guy. I'm sure he had a, a volunteer fire department shirt on. Um, I'm sure he thought he was doing well, uh, by throwing this out there walking up, checking the patient, trying to do, you know, we call it inner and outer circle. Uh, you know, inner circle focuses on that, you know, the patient and the vehicle, Outer circle focuses on the scene, right? And making sure that we keep a bigger picture on it. But I'm inner circle, so we're worried about the patient, worried about the car, making sure we're stable and everything. Talking to the patient, and this, you know, and I'm, this guy's in bad shape. He's not doing so well. And I'm trying to get out to my crew the stuff that I need inside so that I can treat him while I'm in here, while they're cutting him out. And this guy keeps coming up to the vehicle yelling, you need to fly him. You need to fly this patient. And I'm, it stopped. So first off, one, I got to find someone to get this guy out of here, right? right Cause he's right. not helping and he's making it worse. I tell him to back up and then, uh, we get a police officer to pull him back. But his stupid statement made me think, well, sh- maybe we should fly him. Right. And that's coming from a bystander. <laughs> this is coming from a guy with a volunteer fire department shirt from who knows where, if he's even active or was 25 years will. ago. He's yelling this at me, right? And and so I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe maybe I do need to fly him. And But I had to take that like 20 to 30 seconds to go, right. no, Steve, 
you're like 2.5 miles from the hospital <laughs> down a straight road, and you don't need to fly this patient. It's going to take the helicopter 15 or 20 minutes to get here because you didn't activate them, and you're, they're going to be starting from... And so I'm going through right. like why that's a bad idea, and I finally had to tell myself, yeah, you don't need to keep coming up with more reasons why it's a really dumb idea. Right. Just stop that thought process and focus <laughs> on your patient who's in bad shape. But it's really easy to get sucked into that. Oh, yeah, because you have to create, no, here's why I'm right. This, 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 and this. That guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But, hey, Steve, maybe clue in on the fact that you've got a guy right. who's, you know, you're, you're holding inline stabilization on who's starting to slump. Yeah, pretty, he's not doing, he's not doing good. Um, but that question about RSI here, RSI in the ambulance, it's kind of like when you give your kid two choices, like, do you want goldfish right. <laughs> or do you want Cheez-Its? You know, right. you can't have both. What do you want? <laughs> right. And it's like, well, what if, what if, what if I want ice cream? You know, it's like, it, but crap. Right. And then you, it just takes your, your thought process out of it and puts you in a weird spot. And I, I hate I hate dumb questions on scene and right. I hate dumb statements on scene because it is, pulls me if, out of my phone. If Holly wasn't strong, she probably would have RSI'd on scene because she would have been sucked into that. Right. Or if and, I had a different partner, they different may partner. have said, Hey, Holly, we should Option work. one or two, Holly. Option yeah. one or two. Right. And it's like, well, neither. neither. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that the patients would be dead now. Right. Yeah. Right. So. But for their, to their credit on the ground, that's 45 minutes to an hour right. transport. Code three. For sure. So sure. in their minds, that's what they're thinking. That's of. their usual. Whereas my transport's ten minutes. Right, right. Um, so it it worked out really well. Yeah. Cool. Well, I hope we went over some good stuff today. I feel like we touched on the reasons why it's important to use checklists. The reasons why it's important to have good conversations on scene and to have the really the the ego drop and do what's best for the patient. Um, but yeah. Good stuff. It is good stuff. The thing is, is, you know, I'll go to work tomorrow and I could get sucked in on the same stuff. We have to be super strong and super confident, but listen to what someone else is suggesting, but absolutely know your protocols, know what's best for the patient, critically think each and every patient so that you, you're able to withstand those temptations like Holly did. Yeah. And yourself, sir. Yeah. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. Change our opinion of airway management. It, yeah. it looks mm-hmm. a lot different than just an ETQ. It's not an ETQ, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it's it's like a hazmat incident. Sometimes the thing you do is you don't go running in. You right. step back, you get your information, <laughs> and then sometimes it's do nothing right yeah. for it, a long that's time. A win. And that's right. a win. And so we need to kind of reframe the way we're thinking about these things. But let's leave it there, and uh, we'll sign off. But uh, thanks for joining us today, guys, and we'll look forward to the next one. Yes, sir. See you. Thanks.